the central bank tries to lower the rate of inflation, but do consumers have other ideas? From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, today is Monday, June 5th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we talk about the velocity of money and how our desire to have a stash of cash might be feeding into the price of all things we want to buy. Joe Santos helps untangle the thread of that. We get to know an educator helping special ed teachers reach students with autism and their families. Our South Dakota History segment searches for people in cars doing things we don't want to see them doing in cars. Plus, author and illustrator S.D. Nelson is with us. We'll talk about his latest book, Grandma's Teepee. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. Low-income and first-generation college students face obstacles when reaching for higher education. Black Hill State University offers a store where low-income students can walk in, take what they need without pulling out their wallets. That service is thanks to a student interested in making a difference. Lorraine Coronado is a former Black Hills State University senior, and she started the free store at BHSU. She joins me now on the phone. Lorraine, welcome. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about where this idea came from, because I think so many people forget that there are on campus a large number of people who can't afford to pay their bills, and sometimes that goes unnoticed. When did it come into your um, range of thinking? Yeah, of course. So um, I was in student senate for my years at BHSU, and so I got a lot of the data. And um, Black Hill State University is the least funded school in the South Dakota Board of Regents. And we have the one of the highest proportions of students in poverty. So I saw this and thought, there's got to be something I can do, no matter how small it is that can help out. I saw my fellow students struggling to have school supplies, dress clothes for interviews. And so, yeah, that's kind of where uh, the idea for the free store came from. And if they can't make it through, and a lot of times if you don't have money, that can send you packing for home. There's a lot at stake for these students in being able to make it and being able to stay. Tell me a little bit about what the free store is, what it looks like on the inside, what it offers. Yeah, of course. So I applied for a scholarship called the Make a Difference Initiative funded by Jim Hess. And um, with his funding and support from the BHSU Sustainability Department, we opened up this free store. Essentially, students come in and they can grab anything they want for free. This includes school supplies, dress clothes, um, dorm dorm items, kitchen items, anything you can think of. Uh, most of our donations come from students from the years prior who are moving out and from staff members. So, yeah, they just come in, grab anything they want for free. They can donate if they want. And that's how it works. I was wondering what the connection was between sustainability. So a lot of it is, um, I know I just moved my daughter out of college after her graduation. (laughs) A lot of people left stuff behind because they were getting on a plane or they were international students who couldn't take things with them, or maybe they just didn't want those things anymore. So this is a way to also repurpose those things. Do I understand it correctly? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We put out tables when everyone is moving out of the dorms and say, hey, you can donate all of your items here, and then we provide those in the free store. So it is a great way to um, reuse items that a lot of people, like you said, throw away after a year of use. All right. So what's popular in the free store? Winter has to be a, a big high-demand time. Oh, yes. Uh, we Every time we got a coat, it was gone within an hour. So wow. 
Um, lots of winter clothing. Um, dorm supplies and school supplies are really popular as well. A lot of people come in wanting to decorate their dorm, and they just don't have the funds. So we see a lot of that stuff go, too. What kind of school supplies are you talking about? So um, we actually have a place where people can donate their school textbooks. So people come and get their textbooks for free and stuff like that. Yeah. Every time a coat came in, it went out quickly. What does that tell you about the need (laughs) for that? I mean, clearly, yeah. We have students who are here during harsh winters, and a lot of them come from southern states or don't have the money to afford a good winter coat, and they're cold. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, I'm really happy we were able to provide a lot of students with coats this year. All right. So tell me a little bit about your studies at Black Hill State and, and how this experience has changed how you see your work in the world. Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, I majored in sociology, and I feel like if I hadn't have taken all my sociology courses, I never would have came up with this idea. We go over so much data and go over how much need students have, and it really sprouted my idea. And now I'm currently looking at other places I can volunteer after my college experience because I had such a great experience with the free store. Yeah. Um, Lorraine, are there things that you want people from other South Dakota universities to understand about the potential? Do you see this spreading further? Is it already done in other universities? What do you know about how this might be portable? Yeah, so as far as I know, there isn't exactly a free store in the other universities. I know Rapid City Campus has a lending library for books, which I think is incredible. But what I say to students is go for it. Apply for the scholarships. You will get funding if you just advocate for your idea. Look at the data. See how many low-income students are in your college. Um, The free store has been so helpful. We've helped hundreds of students. And hearing their personal experiences makes me realize this is needed in every university. So I just say go for it. Yeah. Lorraine Coronado is a, so graduate, you're a graduate of Black Hill State at this point, yeah? Yes, or, or I graduated have, in May. Okay. I didn't know if you had more coursework to go, if I could call you a graduate. So congratulations. <laughs> and uh, thank you for your work and thank you for your time today. Thank you so much for this interview. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, many schools have a very small team of special education staff. Some have just one or two special educators total. These educators are often asked to do a whole lot with a whole little. Chris Reeve helps empower teachers with resources, training, and general tips. She's the founder and director of Autism Classroom Resources. She's also keynote speaker at this year's Lighting the Way Autism Conference. The Augustana University-sponsored conference explores best practices to support autistic kids and their families. Chris Reeve joins me now on the phone. Chris, welcome to In the Moment. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me how great the need is right now for resources in classrooms that will help assist um, students with autism and the way they connect with educators and teachers and, and support staff, really, in classrooms. How big is the need? It's, it's huge. The, the incidence of autism has now gone up to one out of 34. Um, they represent a wide range of uh, students and adults with some of whom have intellectual disability, many of whom are on an average or above or gifted level, 
um, with all different kinds of characteristics and just a spectrum of some of the issues. So teachers continue to need a lot of training and support to really figure out how to address each one. There's an old saying of if you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism because there is so much variability. And that makes a pretty daunting task for teachers to be able to really have the skills that they need to address which students they have in their class this year, whether they're a general ed teacher with a student in a general ed class or a special ed teacher uh, serving students in a separate placement or supporting them across the school. So how important is an evaluation or a screening or a diagnosis or some kind of marker to say this is what we're working with, or is that not important at all? Are you really looking at student behavior and, and student response? Where is the role of screening or, you know, labeling is probably the wrong word, but, you know, identifying mm-hmm. this is what we're working with? I think, well, the one thing is that that diagnosis, that screening is really important for accessing services. So that is how you kind of get in the door to get the services that you need. With that said, there are a number of characteristics about autism that describes the types of individuals you will deal with, but there is such a large spectrum of characteristics that the diagnosis itself doesn't necessarily tell you exactly what their outcome might be in later life or even what systems they're going to need early on. Uh, But it is the doorway through which you get funding as both a student in the education system as well as as an adult um, in the transition and vocational and community support areas. How can we design (laughs) our classrooms, our families? You know, I have autistic nieces and nephews, and I'm always wondering, how can I design a family gathering in a way that is supportive of them in ways that I haven't thought of because I'm not with them every day in a classroom, for example? But are there ways we can design our, our schools, our playgrounds, our homes that are more supportive for autistic students especially? Yeah, I think a lot of it is, making sure that our expectations are clearly communicated to them in a way that they're going to understand. So if they're a student who isn't, is either nonverbal or has limited comprehension of text or verbal information, using a picture schedule or a simple, we're going to go to um, our aunt's house and we're going to do this and this and this, and then we're going to come home. So giving them some level of predictability and often letting them know what the expectations are. I always kind of make the analogy of going to a friend's son's wedding where it was an all black and white wedding. And I, I frequently, when I get wedding invitations, will call a friend and say, okay, what do I wear? What, you know, what is this like? What am I prepared for? That's kind of what we want to do even for things that, you know, we're going to our aunts for dinner. That sometimes can be helped just by having an understanding of this is what we're going to do when we're there and this is when we're going to come home. This is how we expect, you know, these are the expectations of what you'll be doing while you're there. Um, And I think that in, in itself, whether it's in a classroom and letting them know when we go to music class, here's what we're going to do today and this is the expected behavior 
um, or whether it's going into a, going on a museum field trip or going to the museum with your family and what is that going to be like. And so we can use pictures or sometimes even just a written list if the student is a reader. Um, we can also look at things called social stories, which are basically small stories that help someone understand what a new situation is going to be like. So when I go to the dentist, this is what's going to happen. So it's kind of previewing what's going to happen. Um, but I think the more information and predictability we can build into things, even when they're unpredictable, the, the easier that transition can be. Okay. So by example, then for, uh, you know, for people who are maybe not parents and don't deal with this as often, if you're having a, a backyard barbecue, then you call the parents of the autistic little ones and say, I'm going to have bubbles and they're going to be in this corner of the yard. And then said it, I mean, you just need, it sounds easy and fun to plan a little bit more for these kids because now I'm no longer assuming they're just going to run around the backyard like kids. I'm just saying they need to know a little bit more about what's going to be available and where it's going to be exactly. at. And maybe I even send them a picture of yeah. that spot in the yard. And then I put a mm -hmm. picture up in the yard of bubbles and then I put the bubbles over there. Is that what you're telling me? Yeah. Do I, that, okay. Yeah. That would be awesome. You just made me and a better you, aunt. No, we're yeah. going <laughs> to play for a little bit and then, you know, and then we're going to have dinner. So that they know that, like, when I get there, we're going there for dinner. So when, when are we eating? Right. So they can just kind of predict that. Um, but, yeah, that's a great example. Yeah. So, okay. So how, um, for this conference that's coming up, what sorts of things, you know, the community might learn or attendees might learn that is just going to be, like, I had never thought of what you had just told me. Give me another example of something that really surprises people when you say, hey, do this. It's not super complicated it's just being a good host in a classroom or, or elsewhere yeah um it's it's taking things that i think sometimes we take for granted sure um that you know we think everybody knows and if you think about it with young kids um typical kids we often will say hey you know don't hit your friends and you know, we're going to do this and then we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And we can do a lot of that verbally. I think a lot of what it is for students with autism is making sure that we're doing it in a way that they can understand. There's also a sensory component to autism for a lot of individuals with autism that makes um, sometimes loud places or um, places with a crowd or things like that, that can sometimes be problematic. So knowing that ahead of time, lets you know, oh, okay, so we want to, maybe we want to have a quiet place in the yard. Maybe that's yeah. where the bubbles go. And so that they don't have to always be in the mix of kids that are running around. Right. Um, but it's, it's particular to the individual. So for teachers at the conference or for families at the conference as well, it's about thinking who the student is in your class and what does that particular one need in relation to these strategies. Um, so it's, it's having, it's training to have a larger toolbox so that yeah. when you meet a student who needs a specific strategy, you can pull it out of your toolbox. Yeah. And that, you know, one of the challenges I've always had as an aunt is how do I connect with these kids? Um, and that, that is, it takes a little bit of effort, but eventually they'll, they'll remember that and that connection will, will deepen. I love that. Yes. 
Um, yeah. I, I think I will be remiss if I didn't ask you, you mentioned at the top of our conversation, just the increasing numbers and everybody always wants to know why those numbers are going up. If our screenings are getting better, if there's something going on in our culture, our society, what is it that you know about uh, the data behind how many adults and young people uh, are on the autism spectrum and why that number is so high? I think it's probably a combination of factors. Um, we definitely are screening more. We saw a huge, the biggest increase probably that we've seen in autism was when it became a special education um, eligibility for services. Okay. And so we saw a big jump at that point. Since then, um, autism de- definitions have been refined to describe more of the whole spectrum. So for a while, you only had an autism eligibility if you also had an intellectual disability. Now that's no longer the case, which makes it much easier to serve the students that aren't in the area of intellectual disability, but do have autism and need support for that. Um, There probably is, you know, we have, we know that there's a genetic component to some of it. Mm -hmm. It's one of those disorders that's very difficult to say because we only can define it by what it looks like. And so we've created and these characteristics that we've, these diagnostic characteristics have evolved over time. So that's played a role um, as we've learned more and more and met more and more people on the spectrum. And um, I think that that is one of the things that makes it really hard to say where is it coming from because there's no blood test or genetic marker. They're still doing that research to try to figure that out. And chances are good that there are different types of causes and different types of things that lend itself to that, that create that autism. And so that I think makes it really hard to say, why are we increasing? But definitely there is a much bigger awareness. I always like to say I started in this, field about 25 years ago and I would get on a plane and somebody would say, what do you do? And I would say, I work with kids with autism. And they would say, oh, I love art. Art is so nice when you're painting pictures and autism because nobody knew what it was. And now I get on a plane and people are like, what do you do? And I'm like, I used to say, I teach at a college (laughs) right? (laughs) because everybody, as soon as they say, no, I work in autism, everybody's got has a connection to it now, which certainly was not the case 20 years ago. Everybody wants to. And for many of us, we... Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, For many of us, we had a connection. We just, it just wasn't called that. I have an older sister who, um, in looking back, it's very clear that what she has is autism. But she never would have been diagnosed with the criteria in the 1950s and early 60s. And um, so we also have had a lot of individuals that we've known for a long time. We just didn't recognize that that's what this was. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about what's the right question to ask, sometimes I don't think the right question to ask is why are there so many, but what do those people have to say, especially the adults who have grown up in systems and will tell us specifically like this is, this is helpful. This is not, Uh, don't tell, you know, don't define me. Let me define myself and my own experience and, I think is just a fascinating uh, form of research. So the Lighting the Way conference is uh, June 7th and 8th. That's Wednesday and Thursday. It's at Memorial Middle School in Sioux Falls. 
And there's a Lighting the Way Autism Walk on Saturday. That's all free and open to the public. My guest has been Chris Reeve. That's uh, Chris with a C and R-E-E-V-E. You can also look her up online and see some of those resources and the work that she does. And uh, Chris, it's been just a, a pleasure to talk to you today ahead of the conference. We really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. The economy is pushed and pulled by several forces, from supply and demand to tax rates and exchange rates. Invisible hands move markets. We're going to focus today on one of those forces, the supply of money. Dr. Joe Santos is Director of and Professor of Economics in the Ness School of Management and economics at South Dakota State University. He is with us for a Monday macro lesson from SDPB's Janine Basinger studio on the campus there in Brookings. Joe, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Lori. I almost called you Dr. Joe. <laughs> no, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a whole different segment, uh, Dr. Joe's segment. No. Uh, Monday macro, serious business here, and uh, we're talking about the growth and the supply of money and what velocity is. Where do you want to, to begin this guy? I have lots of questions, but you get us started <laughs> and then I will probably interrupt you in like 20 seconds uh, with a question. I, but. I look forward to it. And I should say that only South Dakota Public Radio is brave enough to take on this <laughs> rather abstract idea of velocity. I love it. So, I love it. So, so, so here's the thing. Um, we all know we have an inflation challenge. Yep. And we're probably all familiar with that expression that inflation is the result of too much money chasing too few goods. Right? Yep. Um, but money is inert. The supply of money isn't chasing anything. Um, in order for the supply of money to chase those too few goods, you and I need to exchange it. And we sort of abstract over this, except on Monday Macro, of course, that this exchange <laughs> process is what is behind this concept we call velocity. So really simple, it'll click in five seconds. You've got $20 worth of stuff that's produced and traded in the economy, but the economy has $10, $10 to buy $20 worth of stuff. So what is happening, of course, is that $10 is changing hands. And so in this case, 10 buys 20 if money changes hands on average two times. That's it. That's it. velocity. Two. That's, that's so, math I, even I can do. And, and, and me too. And yeah. so <laughs> it's really not that it's too much money chasing too few goods. It's too much flow of money chasing mm -hmm. too few goods. And that flow piece is made possible with this idea of velocity. So that's it in the US economy, let's say from like 1980 until say the Great Recession when things get interesting. This number is like two, it actually is two. It's two per year. So on average, the money supply in the economy was changing hands about two times per year to buy the GDP in that economy. So let's talk about this. You know, people, what, what matters greatly in this is how much cash people think they should have. Does that mean like, am I checking in my savings account? Does that, does that mean me? Or are we talking about it, like big time investors and corporations? Oh no, it means We're you. About me. Okay. <laughs> so, so we all do this. Um, yeah. So if you think about this at like an individual level, an individual doesn't have GDP, but they have income. Mm -hmm. And it, an individual has some share 
of their assets in the form of money. And by money here, great question. We mean, as I like to tell my students, anything you can go, you know, to your favorite lunch place with and buy lunch. So yeah. it's currency. Uh, so it's paper, it's coin, it's checking account balances, savings account balances, um, essentially. So stuff you can draw on, maybe with an ATM card, perhaps not literally handing a $10 bill, but that would work too. Right. But stuff you could draw on to facilitate purchases. So some share of your, let's say, assets are comprised or is comprised of money. So for example, this is gets a little weird, but if you want to think about velocity sort of at the household level, it'd be like saying, I don't know, you generate $50,000 of income a year. And over the course of that year, you have access to about $25,000 worth of money. And so it's changing hands twice, right? 25 to get to 50 again right. is two. So this is at an individual level as well. It's not as interesting at an individual level, but when you go up to 50,000 feet and look down, mm -hmm. it's just something you can't help but notice. There's you know, less money than there is economic activity. And so to get from one to the other, you get this money changing hands idea. But we get to decide based on... That's right. Um, how much I want to spend. How, when do I get stressed out as far as the, you know, I remember a time in my life when my checking account would go down to, you know, $4 before the next paycheck just because right. I was living that closely to now, I, you know, that would give me a heart attack. Back then it was just the reality of my life, right? But that could, that, that could that, change right. next year. I could just decide, no, I'm not going to buy anything because I really want to see that number grow. Well, I don't want to invest it. I just want the cash. I want it under my pillow. Um, yep, exactly. And a whole lot and of people so, can decide that at once. <laughs> that's right. And so, so this is what is so crucial is that velocity is really a function of preferences. Yeah. So if, again, from 50,000 feet, you know, you say $10 changes hands twice to buy $20 worth of stuff. Another way to think about that, again, from 50,000 feet is that the economy likes an amount of money, 10. That's about 50% of GDP, 20 right? But, mm -hmm. but it likes, it's a preference. And so if we get in our heads, like we did during the Great Recession, that cash is king, that was sort of the expression we used, that would be like saying, no, I don't want, what did I say, $10 against $20 of economic activity. I want, I don't know, $20 against $20 of economic activity. Suddenly my demand for money has gone up and money doesn't change hands as quickly as it once did. So this is all driven by preferences. And during the pandemic, yeah. That's sort of what happened. Cash was king, and we had these enormous money balances, we call them, and then we had GDP, and the relationship between the two was like one for one. So forget $10 against 20. It was $20 against 20. But to your point, this is really driven by personal preference. What's really going on behind the scenes is what we call the demand for money. In other words, how much of your wealth, let's say, do you want? in the form of something you could buy lunch with. Yeah. Um, and that number went up dramatically during the pandemic and sort of the news flash now is it's starting to go back down. That is our demand for money is not as elevated as it once was. And so money is changing hands more quickly. That is the flow is increasing and that's potentially inflationary. Is that okay? So, I, and this, where this gets really good is if you go on the website to schooled.blog.com because you can't see the charts and graphs and spell out the first dot, by the way, schooled, D O T, um, blog, and then dot as in period.com. Makes sense? 
If you can't figure that out, go to our link on our website <laughs> and you'll click over and it will be awesome. And you'll see figure one, figure two, money and inflation. And I want to talk about figure two a little bit here because the money supply is like going way down and the inflation is going way up and all of it uh, sort of pools around 2020, 2021. Um, mm -hmm. It's a little unnerving, frankly. <laughs> yeah. So, so you have this, that's right. So you have this fall in the growth of money. So like, you know, the Fed's doing what they're supposed to be doing. They're, they're pulling back on, on supplying money, just yeah. like you'd expect them to do. And then of course you expect a lag. It's not going to work immediately to lower inflation, but, but you know, we're all sort of sitting here looking at our watches and thinking, okay, I think it should be about time now. And inflation is still stubbornly high. And again, what's, what's going on arithmetically is the growth of money is falling, but that preference thing you talked about is also happening. Our desire to hold the money, maybe think hoard the money, something that would be very uh, disinflationary, uh, is going away. And so, yes, there's less money supply, but guess what? We're content to hold less money. So the flow of money, our willingness to surrender it to purchase goods and services and hold very little of it when we're not purchasing goods and services, that's actually increasing that flow and it's chasing too few goods and it's this inflation is persisting. And, and the, the, the rub here is that, you know, the Fed can manipulate the supply of money. It's sort of what they do. It's what makes them the Fed. Um, but they can't get in our heads and say, no, no, please hoard some cash, right? There's no way, much like they can't say, please like chocolate ice cream, they can't say, uh, please increase your demand for money, right? So if we're surrendering it more uh, quickly than we were before, well, so be it. So this is an inflationary force that they've now got to contend with for which they have no tool, or as we like to say, yeah. instrument, because instrument sounds cooler than tool. But we're, re we're releasing that money for goods that are priced higher. Right. And, and this gets really so why weird. Would, but actually why wouldn't we stop doing that? Why wouldn't we just naturally well, stop doing that? Yeah. It's a simultaneous process. Okay. The fact that we are surrendering the money more quickly increases the flow. It has to go somewhere. It either goes into more stuff. We can't do that. So it goes into higher price stuff. So it's, it's sort of all happening simultaneously. That velocity is rising. The flow of money chasing goods is rising. The goods can't run away fast enough. And so their prices are rising it's simultaneously occurring. Um, and so th this is why if the Fed had their way, I suspect they would prefer not to see uh, whatever it is, figure three or something, this uptick in velocity. So it, if anyone's keeping track, it was about one. Um, yeah. It's up to about 1.3. But again, in normal times before the Great Recession, it was like two. two. So if it were to grow up to something like two, that would be very inflationary. I'm not suggesting that that happens. But qualitatively that's the direction that it would have to go up to grow inflation or at least to keep it stubbornly high so what what if what we learned or what we think we learned during the pandemic is permanent and 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 to answer that right. question we have to say like is there something that we learned i mean are, based on from the from the macro economy level mm -hmm. Because when you go down to the basics, you know, like everybody learns something different and nobody agrees on anything. Yeah, but from the macroeconomic level, what did we learn during the pandemic about hoarding or saving or keeping lots of cash on hand? And what if that stays permanent? Yep, because people are it's a, remember it's, what yep. it was like. They're not going to forget that. They're not going to forget the pandemic. It's a, it's a really good question. And, you know, I, I think what we observed, and maybe even since the financial crisis, was mm -hmm. that... 
um, there was this demand, we often say demand for liquidity, that, you know, cash is king, that we were not accustomed to seeing. And it kind of never went away. And to your point, the pandemic just sort of catalyzed it. Um, and maybe that's the new normal. But uh, as interest rates rise, funny thing about our preferences, they can be shaped by interest rates. As interest rates rise, I mm. mean, cash doesn't do something, and that is it doesn't earn interest. As I tell my students, it collects dust, not interest. And so as interest rates have been rising, that's actually perhaps getting us to rethink this desire to hold cash because it's getting expensive to do it. And that was, you know, kind of the underlying challenge that uh, Silicon Valley Bank faced, right? That yeah. uh, folks were choosing to not hold money, you know, checking accounts, savings accounts, small time deposits, and instead shifting it into something that we wouldn't think of as the stuff you can go wherever and buy lunch with. Um, and so you're right. I think there was this preference shock toward holding enormous amounts of money relative to the goods and services we would purchase with the money. Um, but there is some evidence now that maybe it's starting to change and, and higher interest rates are just the sort of thing traditionally that have gotten folks to rethink their demand for money and so gotten velocity to move up when interest rates move up. So fascinating. That's one of my favorite takeaways from these, uh, you know, <laughs> a little bit of math. I feel like, oh, I can maybe figure that out. But when it gets right down to it, it's all about our behavior and culture right. and, and what we're doing that we don't realize is connected to what somebody else is doing. Um, so yep. fascinating. Joe Santos, uh, Director <laughs> of and Professor of Economics in the Nest School of Management and Economics at SDSU. For Monday Macro, we'll put a link up to his blog post on our website at sdpb.org slash news. That's um, after the show. We usually do that. Joe, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Lori. Let's take a moment for South Dakota history. And if you don't want to explain this one to your kids, just turn down your radio for a few minutes. On this day in 1934, the Argus Leader published a warning to drivers with romantic intentions. Automobiles were growing in popularity, and the way cars were used was becoming more, shall we say, varied. As the Argus reported, quote, law enforcement officers are on the lookout for couples engaging in inappropriate behavior while parked in cars at Terrace Park and Sherman Park in Sioux Falls. Now, Terrace Park was founded in 1916. It was originally known as Coval Lake Park. Terrace Park took its modern name from the steep terraces on the east side of the park. Sherman Park was founded in 1910 on the initiative of Mrs. Helen McKinnon. She wanted to donate land to the city for a park and did so with the help of her attorney, E.A. Sherman. He helped prepare her will to donate the land that would become McKinnon Park. Mr. Sherman was also a park advocate and devoted the rest of his life to promoting parks for the city. He followed Mrs. McKinnon's example and offered 52 acres of land to the city for what would become Sherman Park. The land between 12th and 26th streets in Sioux Falls includes a high bluff overlooking the Sioux River, the Great Plains Zoo, baseball diamonds, and the Battleship Memorial. But let's get back to those concerns about how some people might use the parks. The police concerns about parked cars in 1934 remain today. If couples engage in inappropriate behavior while parked in cars in public spaces, they can be charged with public indecency. 
That's a class two misdemeanor. They could also be charged with indecent exposure, which could be a misdemeanor, or raised to a felony. That's if a person is convicted of three or more indecent exposure violations. If caught under the same circumstances on private land, that could include an additional charge of trespassing. And all of this was brought to the public's attention on this day in 1934 thanks to the Argus Leader's report. It read that police were on the lookout for couples engaging in inappropriate behavior while parked in cars at Terrace Park and Sherman Park in Sioux Falls. Production assistance for this day in South Dakota history comes from Brad Tennant, professor of history at Presentation College. Coming up next, author and illustrator S.D. Nelson returns to the program. We'll talk about his new book, Grandma's Teepee. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. A new children's book is presenting Native American characters in a time and setting kids might not traditionally see them in, at least within the pages of Kid Lit. Acclaimed author S.D. Nelson's new book is called Grandma's Teepee, a present-day Lakota story, and it tells the story of a young girl spending the summer with her grandma and cousin in the Standing Rock Reservation. Nelson has written numerous children's books inspired by his Lakota heritage. You may recognize titles like The Star People, Buffalo Bird Girl, Gift Horse, and Crazy Horse's Vision. S.D. Nelson returns to the program now and joins me on the phone. Welcome back. Thank you for being here. Hi, Lori. It's good to be with you. Grandma's TB is such a beautiful book. I'm so glad to have a copy in front of me now. Tell me a little bit about why you wanted to write and paint about teepees in this particular contemporary setting. Well, as I was writing this particular book, I realized that I was really channeling my my mother's voice. Uh, My mother, Christine Elktooth Woman, grew up during the Great Depression on the Standing Rock Reservation, and uh, her first language was Lakota, and uh, she was fluent uh, in that as well as English. But when I was a boy growing up in the 50s, uh, we spent... uh, a lot of time on the Standing Rock visiting relatives, and uh, my my mother's stories about her childhood uh, had a great influence on me, and I hope uh, that voice comes through in this book. Tell me about uh, Grandma in this book, because she is welcoming these children, and uh, the, the warmth that she radiates, but also the traditions that she wants to impart are so important to her. Uh, how did you develop that character throughout the book? Well, of course, uh, I have, uh, or I should say, had two grandmothers, one from my father's side of the family, uh, which is uh, my Anglo uh, part of my uh, heritage, and uh, my Native American grandmother who lived with us when I was a teenager. And I had the, the fortune of being able to sit, for example, at the kitchen table and just listen to my mother and grandmother talk fluently in Lakota. And I, I wanted to uh, 
update and share in the present for readers, for children and parents, uh, a, uh, a person that uh, they could relate to. So there are a number of little adventures that take place in and around the, the teepee in this story. And the grand, grandmother is the keeper of the teepee. There is a wonderful uncle in the book as well, who is a bit of a clown. And you have painted him with a prosthetic leg. He is uh, delightful and, and makes the children laugh. Tell me who inspired him or why you thought his character was so important to this story. Thanks for that question. Well, I had an Uncle Louie, uh, who is the namesake of this character in the story, and uh, he had a, a little bird tattooed on his uh, upper arm that I remember. Uh, he also uh, had artificial teeth. And I can remember sitting uh, at a table, and he was quite a jokester, and he would pop those teeth out every now and then. Wow when I least expected it, <laughs> and scared the daylights out of me, but uh, it was all in, in good fun. Um, but he also uh, communicated to we kids that uh, uh, we had this heritage, this Lakota Sioux heritage, and that left a big impression on me. Yeah. You are um, making the rounds. You're going to be in Rapid City at the end of the month, June 21st through 24th. Tell me a little bit about the Western Writers of America convention and your role there. Thank you for that question. Uh, the uh, Western Writers of America, and I'm proud to uh, be a member, uh, honors uh, the, the literature of the West, not just written by uh, Anglo-Americans or people uh, from outside of South Dakota, but uh, the entire romance uh, of the West, Wild West, I guess I, I could say. Um, well, for example, I'm really looking forward to being there uh, at the end of this month uh, in Rapid City. We are going to be honoring one of our uh, Lakota authors, uh, Joe Marshall, mm -hmm. uh, with uh, the uh, Owen Wister Award, which is like the Academy Awards of Western Writing. And Joe Marshall, uh, as I think many of your listeners know, is uh, just a fabulous Lakota man from uh, the Rosebud and has written uh, numerous uh, wonderful books uh, that uh, celebrate uh, our Lakota heritage. So, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to being in Rapid City, uh, and I hope you'll have as good a weather as I, <laughs> I know you're having right now. <laughs> I make no promises. I, I can tell you, and you perhaps already know this, but Oscar Howe um, Exhibition Dakota Modern is opening this weekend at the South Dakota Arts Museum, and of course, the great Oscar Howe has been given the South Dakota Governor's Art Award, as have you. That's the last time that we talked to each other was when that award was announced. Um, other great luminaries have, like Dale Lamphere, our current artist laureate, and Virginia Driving Hawk Sneavy have also received that acknowledgement. Um, but Oscar Howe and his influence, his impact on all of us, but especially Native American artist is so profound, I can't even get my mind around it. 
Do you have yeah. thoughts on how his work inspired or impacted you as an artist, specifically as a painter? Absolutely. Um, Oscar Howe uh, was a contemporary artist uh, who brought uh, Lakota traditions into the 20th and 21st century. Uh, he, uh, I guess you could say uh, he was a player at the table. Um, and uh, I certainly think that uh, uh, people like Joseph Marshall uh, are as well. Uh, we are contemporary, uh, and we are here, and we appreciate that uh, people are uh, looking at our work and listening. Yeah. Uh, we were just talking a few minutes on the program about the pandemic and um, you know how we still think about you know money based on that. And I'm curious to know your thoughts about art and reading for kids and how important, and maybe we could talk about the, the readathome.org you know, project when, when school was disrupted in so many ways and when kids were sort of just knocked off the beam for anything that resembled stability, sometimes what they had at home was, was books. How do you see reading and literacy for kids being a, a stable force in a, in a child's life? Why do you want to continue that work through Read at Home? Well, one of the di disturbing things uh, that still bothers me is that so many of our Native American kids uh, are not reading at grade level. And so our Read at Home program that I'm a co-founder of uh, has taken a little bit of a different direction in trying to do some problem solving in a proactive way. So books are really important, and having books in our homes uh, uh, has a great influence on children. But readathome.org provides magazines, and I can remember when I was raising, uh, when we, my wife and I, uh, we're raising our two daughters. We had magazine subscriptions, highlights, mm -hmm. Ranger Rick, that kind of thing. And I remember how much our daughters uh, looked forward to receiving every month a, a fresh new subscription to a magazine with their, uh, their name uh, as a dressee. So um, we provide right now uh, to... 500 children on four different uh, Indian reservations, magazine subscriptions to the Highlights magazine High Five. And these kids get a new subscription every month during the school year. And uh, uh, they receive it at their Head Start program, and they get to take the magazine home, where I hope uh, family members and they uh, continue to read and share uh, the stories. I love High Five. We subscribe to that, too. And my, my daughter, she's graduated from college now, but uh, when she was little, and I enjoyed looking through it, too, partially because I remember highlights, and, you know, it's not just for your dentist office. It's also for your mailbox. But High Five is a whole new, vibrant uh, publication, so I love that. All right, so the book that we've been talking about, the latest book from S.D. Nelson, is called Grandma's Teepee. It's a present-day Lakota story. You can see S.D. at the upcoming Western Writers of America convention and then again at the South Dakota Festival of Books in Deadwood this September. I'll be out there. I will stop by and 
say hello to you, but thank you for joining us today. It's my honor and a privilege. Thanks so much, Lori. A note to listeners, um, that website, by the way, was readathome.org, where we were talking about the magazine and uh, with S.D. Nelson. Always great to have him on the program. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. Coming up on tomorrow's In the Moment, another book that I'm deep into right now is called Ice, From Mixed Drinks to Skating Rinks, A Cool History of a Hot Commodity, and it is written by Amy Brady. And Amy Brady, the author, will join us tomorrow on the program. Producers and I were just talking today about all the salacious stories of of bringing ice to people around the world from the frozen lakes of the north to New Orleans to Cuba and beyond. It's a great book. We look forward to talking to Amy Brady tomorrow. So from all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. We'll see you tomorrow. And thanks for listening. 